China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Margaret Pearson, the Dr. Horace V. and Wilma E. Harrison Distinguished Professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland, College Park. Today we'll be discussing her recent research on China's influence and investments in Africa. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I wonder if I could start by asking for a brief thumbnail sketch of of your career and intellectual interests. You are now and have been one of the most prolific scholars of China. Those students like myself who who are constantly trying to learn about China are always uh, on the lookout for the next Margaret Pearson book or paper. But I wonder if you could rewind a bit and tell us how you first got on this this trajectory and any notable influences, literature or, or human that helped shape how you think about China. Yeah, well, it has been a, a long time, I guess, when I look back on it. I um, of, of the generation where a lot of my peers in this field either had grandparents who were missionaries in China or some family member in the way back who had done business in China, and they came to it sort of with a kind of family connection, some even born in China to said missionary or diplomat or whatever. For me, I was in high school and I took a class at an alternative school on the campus of the University of Illinois. Uh, and the class, as it turned out, was taught by students from the Maoist cell on campus. So that was my first influence subject, being subject to my first influence operation. But it was learning all about the Cultural Revolution. And I had always been very interested in how government impacts the economy uh, in this country, kind of even back then. And so I just became fascinated in how the emerging economy after the revolution um, was evolving in China. And then obviously when the reform set in, how the government was was sort of interacting with that economy. So I consider myself part of this field that's called political economy, and it's sort of at the, at the nexus of those two um, understandings. Luckily, then when I got to college, I had a fantastic teacher, Stephen Goldstein uh, at Smith College, who kept my interest very high, uh, including through the study of the Soviet Union, which had not yet collapsed. And so, you know, just really, I would say through great teaching uh, is really where where I ended up going to graduate school. And then um, the fact that China is so damn interesting and there's been a lot going on in China's economy and its evolution. I think there's never been a dull moment. So. I think it was you and me talking about this the last time I saw you about how you as a, a PhD advisor are seeing the field shift now owing to developments in China and the United States and the bilateral relationship, which certainly affect what topics are are open and available. I, I wonder if I could ask you, as much as you're comfortable sharing, what, what are the challenges as a as a PhD student and as an advisor in selecting the appropriate topics to invest in for, let's say, a PhD dissertation or to think about how you want to position yourself as a scholar. I'm imagining that the option set is very different from what it was 20, 25 years ago, maybe most notably with the ability to do field work. But what sort of guidance and advice are you giving and what challenges do you see confronting today's PhD students? Yeah, the challenges are quite high, I think. So, as you said, the 
biggest challenge at the moment is the difficulty of doing field work. Obviously, the pandemic has mostly shut that down. For all intents and purposes, they shut it down, I would say. But even before that, the ability of a student working on a dissertation in the United States to spend time in China and really gain access the way that a lot of scholars, including myself, were able to gain access to not just officials, not just high-level officials, but to you know regular people doing business, uh, for example, or citizens on the street, that aperture has narrowed considerably. So the questions remain as interesting as ever, but the ability of students to, without risk to themselves, get good information really has closed. So that affects the way you advise students. While in an ideal world, students would be off doing the best they can with whatever they can, they're in a very competitive um, market, in a competitive job market. And so you have to have a balance between what can be done and also what is going to be seen as interesting to the people who eventually might hire them in universities. So I would say on that second perspective as well, what people are going to want to hire them for, we've seen a shift more toward looking at security issues and less at looking at maybe um, NGOs and kind of civil society kinds of issues. That's Those are things that are now hot in academia and I think where a lot of jobs are. I don't remember if it was the last podcast I did or the one prior to that with uh, Yashang Huang, but we talked about this a bit and he said that although, yes, there's real limitations, that there's now just a lot more data available. How compensatory do you think the availability of data is to to answer questions? Yeah, well, Yashang's absolutely right about that. There is a tremendous amount of data, uh, in some ways too much data that comes out of China. People often will say, oh, can you trust the data? I think most of the data is you know, reasonable enough to be able to use it. It's just different. So when you're using quantitative data sets, you're able to do sometimes very fancy kinds of analysis with them. Uh, you're able to rule out alternative explanations and so forth. But it can be frustrating when you're not actually able to be on the ground figuring out whether, oh, is this hunch that I'm thinking about making sense to the people here, right? Is where my data seems like it's pointing, even though it is kind of technically and statistically correct, does it mirror the experience that people have on the ground. And so the inability to do more anthropological style research, I think hurts. I think hurts. Now, I think after the pandemic, we will find that students, particularly who uh, are from the mainland originally and who have excellent language skills and perhaps the ability to go and hang out you know, with their family in their hometown for a year or whatever, they're going to they're going to be able to fill in some of these some of these gaps, which is a which is a very good thing. But even that is missing right now. Yeah, just thinking about a discussion I had with Ma Xiao, who did his PhD in Washington State, but is at Beida and did that really good book on China's high high speed rail network. And that's one of those where you imagine, you know, so much of what was awesome about that was the fact that he was able to go do these, you know, these interviews with you know, local party cadres. And I imagine he could have done some of the book at a distance, you know, with publicly available, you know, sources and creating data sets, but it just would have been a, it wouldn't have had that interpretive, you know, subtext that he was able to get by, you know, direct conversations with, you know, actors involved in it. Absolutely. If I'm right, he did much of that um, pre-pandemic and maybe even before China-U.S. relations got much worse. And, and now he's back in China. And so maybe that 
that means that the fact that he has a U.S. PhD is maybe less salient. But even so, you know, you find that there is still some mistrust that people don't necessarily want to talk to you as freely as they might have four, five, six years ago. And so uh, I think that's something that is in short supply at this point, And I would like to see come back if we if we possibly can. It's relevant, I guess, that we're, we're talking about data and data sources, if I can make a, a clumsy and clunky segue now to the, the papers under discussion. This is an example of what you can do when you have really you know, good, interesting data sets that allow you to answer questions, which even if you had anthropological work, you couldn't arrive at conclusions at scale like you're able to do with this. So we're now going to talk about two very recent papers, and I know you've got additional work in the hopper, which we can absolutely sort of thread in to this. But the two papers, which we'll put links in the show notes, but one is from uh, World Development, uh, Does Chinese FDI in Africa Inspire Support for a China Model of Development, which is co-authored. Both these are co-authored with the same sets of co-authors, uh, John McCauley and uh, Xiaonan Wang. And the second paper is Foreign Direct Investment, Unmet Expectations, and the and the prospects of political leaders evidence from Chinese investment in Africa. So first question is, how did you get interested and what were the kind of questions or what were the gaps in the research that that you felt merited, you know, this this really significant work you've put into this question of trying to really understand at a granular level how China engages in Africa, but more importantly, how local actors in in Africa respond to these Chinese exertions. Yeah, so the two papers are linked, and I would say they connect to a broader question in my mind, which is basically wanting to know whether, because China does something economically, it has the impact that the rest of the world thinks it might have. So we have a lot of assumption that because China is deeply involved in economic activities in Africa, this will mean that it will make China more important in Africa. It will redound to China's benefit in Africa in terms of its foreign policy. And so the underlying question really is one of, of influence, right? How does China gain influence abroad? There's tremendous amount of attention to that, particularly in the US. But I think that the question of how a, a country gains influence is really very complicated. So it just because it has an initiative doesn't mean that the place where it is interacting is going to line up with Beijing, right? So both of these papers are really kind of based on a desire to explore more carefully when China goes to Africa, when Chinese companies go to Africa and set up projects, what does it mean for Africans, right? How do they respond to it? If they are not responding positively to it, then that would suggest that the ability of the Chinese government to use foreign investment as an influence tool is much weaker than we assume. So that is prejudging now my answer uh, to that question a little bit based on this research, but the underlying question of, you know, when China does something, when China says we're going to invest, does the rest of the world say, oh, great, and now we love you? That is a dubious logic from the beginning. And I wanted to sort of explore it a little bit more from the empirical point of view. And, and another Part of this, at least to me, as I was reading these two papers, is disaggregating sort of when we say China does X in region X, sometimes those shorthands are necessary because if we are too granular, our conversations would take 5,000 times as long. So I, I oftentimes don't mind if we say, you know, the US did this, even though you could be a pedant and say, well, 
who specifically. So sometimes we need to, you know, contract or extrapolate or whatever the right word is. But this is a really good example of where disaggregating is is incredibly helpful, right? Because you're there's a disaggregation here between, you know, foreign direct investment and and aid from China. There's also a disaggregation of the incentives or the response from political leaders in Africa and the general public. You would miss a lot if you just said China's influence in Africa, when really what you're saying is the specific types of influence or the specific actors, Chinese actors who are engaged with Africa and, and what the effect is, you know, the delta between how political leaders in Africa and, and the people in Africa res- respond to that. So I sometimes do get annoyed when people say over and over again, China is not a monolith, which I kind of get that, but understand why people, you know, use shorthands. But this is a really, these papers are a good example of where that disaggregation is very important. Can you talk a bit before we get into the heart of it, just about the data and the sources of data and for us lay people, how do you know that data sources are out there? And then you combined different data sources. How does one, you know, how does one take sort of apples and oranges and, and get something holistic that you can make scientifically valid conclusions from? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And it's not something that we chose. These sources aren't sources that we chose overnight. We, in particular, with regard to the data on foreign investment in China, thought a long time about how we wanted to try to measure what we were thinking of. So the two data sources are the Afrobarometer, which is uh, every two years or so, an organization, an NGO basically in Africa, does interviews with individuals in as many African countries as they can access. They ask often the same questions every year, so you can get a sense of change over time. Not always. And that data is publicly posted uh, on the Afrobarometer website or certain aspects of it aren't posted, but you can request it for use. And so uh, that's used quite a lot. There are equivalents for Asia, Asia Barometer, LATPOP for Latin America and so forth. So, so this public opinion data is pretty readily available. We needed to understand. So my my own background, um, actually, my dissertation in the early 1980s was on foreign investment in China, looking at foreign direct investment by overseas firms in to China. So I have always felt quite comfortable with this channel of economic activity, foreign direct investment, as opposed to trade or as opposed to aid or foreign portfolio investment. So I think that probably helped influence the way we went with this. But but we needed to understand, we wanted to understand investment at the project level, which meant that looking at data that comes out of, for example, the Ministry of Commerce in China now, they'll give aggregate data about overall flows toward different countries. You know, you get you get good data that way. But we wanted to have a sense of, you know, how people in African citizens in specific locations are reacting to what we presumed they would see around them very granularly, you know, whether the projects were creating jobs for them, whether they were um, they had better quality products in the stores and so forth. And so project level data is what we wanted. There's a very good data set out of uh, the Derek Scissors runs out of AEI called the China Global Investment Tracker, which we considered. The downside of that is that it tracks very large projects. And so we felt that, you know, the activity from Chinese companies was going to be, yes, large, but also small. And so the Financial Times data set that we used has a range of different, a wide range of different sectors of types of investment and also different sizes of investment. So now the downside with that is that it is proprietary. And so we had to pay for that data. Final, final, final level set question, and then we'll, we'll we'll get to the darn papers. Which is for those of us who don't follow China in Africa beyond the occasional, you know, Wall Street Journal, FT 
New York Times. Now I feel like I got to list all the newspapers. That way I'm fair to everyone. Burlington Free Press, my hometown paper. Okay, I'll stop there. You know, those of us who don't follow it in as much detail as you do, can you just spend a few seconds sketching out when we say China and Africa, what are some of the you know, what are some of the most salient points you think uh, a listener should understand in terms of the size, scope, depth? You know, if we were sitting at a bar and I said to you, you know, Margaret, China and Africa, what, what's interesting and important? What are just some of the highlights you would you would give to us so we can understand the context for the rest of our discussion? So I would point, if we were in a bar, I, I would point you to sort of the three main channels of Chinese activities. One is aid, which is government to government, right? So where you have political actors selecting um, for usually political reasons, recipients of aid who, are, who generally are closely linked to state actors. And a lot of research is done on that. There's also trade, uh, trade deals, you know, that happen at all levels, both government and, and private. Investment, I think, is interesting because it really involves setting up projects on the ground. You know, they're supposed to, if they're greenfield investments that are supposed to, you know, start a new business and have sort of uh, ripple out effects or spillover effects to um, more broadly into the economy. And really in Africa, you see, as well as all over the world, as in the US, I would say, you see lots of different kinds of investment. So it's a, a wide range from state-owned to private, from huge companies that we've all heard of like Huawei to tiny, you know, kind of more diaspora-related companies that nobody's ever heard of, from a variety of sectors from, you know, payment platforms to mining of cobalt to manufacturing shoes and clothing, right? So there's a just a wide, wide range of activity. And while having such a wide range of activity can be a downside, you know, we have to understand that it's a very broad interaction that China's Chinese economic actors have with uh, economic actors and citizens in Africa. So I guess the, other, the last point I'd like to highlight is that when we talk about China as the actor here, and I appreciate your your concern over using that shorthand, but we all will we all do use it and will use it. You know, um, very often people assume that means the Chinese state and and that that the government is dictating these things. And and what's very often important to realize is that you have companies, even if they're state owned and even if they are large companies that we've all heard of, they also have commercial interests. And so they're making decisions, maybe somewhat colored by by political directive, uh, perhaps, but often in my view, not, and often they're doing so for reasons of making of making money, uh, and you know that that can make them helpful developmentalists, or that can make them bad capitalists. You know, there's a whole range of activities. It doesn't mean they're 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 good or bad, but it is a lot of commercial activity, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. If I can make a slight, uh, ask a slightly tangential question, I guess this is both methodological question, but also has political import, which is just as you were talking about the role of state-owned enterprises or how we should think about them. And you make the good, you know, a straightforward point that they're not pure proxies for Xi Jinping. He's not, you know, in he's not in the mothership pulling dials to send Costco or, you know, China construction. But their ultimate shareholder is the Chinese, the Chinese state. And increasingly they have more sort of party you know, in corporate governance within the boards and the chairman of the boards, these are now, you know, the party secretary. As a conceptual matter, and you've done a lot on, as you say, political economy and, and the party state, and understanding that categorization 
of things along spectrums is often very difficult about where you, you know, where does someone, you know, what is, what is the precise sort of cellular accumulation where someone goes from being, you know, short to tall? I, I, like, I don't know. <laughs> so continuums are very hard. It does seem to me increasingly challenging to, to distinguish. And I wonder if there's a methodological challenge here as well in the Chinese sort of political economy. How should we treat a, an SOE or even a private, you know, quote unquote, privately owned company? How do you think about these in terms of where you lump these? Because I get your point that not all SOEs all the time are making political decisions. A lot of times SOEs you know, are making political decisions. And and because we're not in the boardroom and can't vet every single move, we don't know if it's more colored by geostrategic or or political sort of necessities where the where the you know the chairman of the board is is leaning hard to do X because he understands that's that's the political imperative. Or when it's a pure commercial deal and Costco is just operating like Maersk or Mediterranean shipping. Are these challenges becoming increasingly evident when you're trying to think about categorization and looking at China as a global actor, or are we still sort of basically operating off of this, the sort of metrics we did 10 years ago, which is, you know, I don't know. It's not really, this is, question has become less coherent the longer I've been talking, but. <laughs> it's a great question. It's, oh, it's a great question. So the narrow answer tied to these papers is that in our results, we find very little difference between state-owned enterprises and private enterprises in terms of whether people are on the ground are reacting to them as you know proxies of the state versus non-proxies of the state. Um, so for this project, we have done separate analyses for state-owned and private enterprises at, insofar as they are demarcated in the data sets as state versus privately owned, or insofar as we found. We don't find much salience to that categorization. Um, in other work that I'm doing, um, if I can just plug my other co-authors, Meg Rithmeyer of Harvard Business School and Kelly Tsai from um, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, we've been writing a lot about uh, what we call the blurred lines between state and private enterprise in China. And I, I think as a broader point, you know, the fact that in the West, we are so attuned to the idea of private being kind of, you know, not having not having the state involved and basically good and state being totally overwhelmed by the state and bad. We're so wedded to these distinctions that we still think it's important. Whereas in those papers that I've done with uh, Meg and Kelly, we're essentially arguing that the, blurry, the blurred lines between the two are so great that in some ways the distinction doesn't make that much sense anymore, both because of the commercial needs of state-owned enterprises, but even more, as you say, because of the many tools that the state is now using in the private sector in order to try to uh, guide it or, or edge it in certain directions or whatever, so that the ability to tell ex ante whether a company is going to do something because, based on whether it's state or private is nearly um, impossible. So I think that's hugely important. And just to plug a long article and an excerpt from it for those who are lazy, the long article is in the most recent uh, issue of international security that Margaret just mentioned. It's called China's Party State Capitalism and Inter International Backlash, colon, from interdependence to insecurity. And then a, a shorter a shorter Cliff Notes version of that was in a, was recently um, on the on foreign affairs. So highly recommend folks um, do that. And that actually, I, I think you the three of you have done a previous party state paper last year, if I'm, if I'm correct. 
there's so much throat clearing here. I, I have barely left time for us to talk about the papers, but this is all interesting and important stuff. So I appreciate your your patience and the, the, the patience of the listeners, assuming they're still listening at this point. Maybe I, just to make sure we get to the, the heart of the papers, I wonder, you know, starting with unmet expectations, the, the paper, I wonder if you can give us the main uh, argument here on how the delta between or sort of the incentive structure for for political leaders in Africa who actively seek and trumpet FDI from China as a political victory. And maybe you can talk a bit about their expectations and incentives. But then more importantly, in, in this first paper is the data set you have gotten from nearly 200,000 respondents in Africa about how the African people how they respond to uh, FDI in the near term and, and in the long term. Right, right. So um, basically, uh, my colleague, John McCauley, who's one of the co-authors, he is a, a scholar of African politics. And one reason I thought it was a great pairing, uh, along with Xiaonan Wang, uh, was because I wanted to make sure that we kind of understood what was going on from the African perspective, right? And so what um, John has been able to educate us to is the idea that African leaders, um, the way our local congressmen might sort of say, oh, okay, well, I just signed a big deal with X company and it's going to bring lots of jobs and really is going to develop our economy, you know, so vote for me in the next election, right? That a lot of, po a lot of political leaders see that providing development opportunities is a good political move for them. Uh, and so they presumably have incentives to tout new investments that haven't been there before, including from China. And so I think what you typically see is, you know, in a, in a new investment opens up uh, or starts or when um, ground is being broken or where the contract is being signed, you know, a ribbon cutting with the local political leaders from Africa and the local, you know, representative of the Chinese embassy there. And everybody's like, oh, you know, here we're doing great things for this local economy. And so what we find is that citizens, you know, living proximate to those projects think this is pretty good. And they they tend to rate their leaders' capabilities, their own domestic leaders' capabilities higher. They manage the economy better. I have more optimism in the future. When they are located proximate to these projects, say within 75 kilometers of them, and when these projects are just announced. But we find that over time, and by the time a project actually becomes operational, which can be two, three, four years, people are disappointed, right? They And we call this unmet expectations. So they are disappointed in their own political leaders. They're disappointed in the economic future of their area. So what does this mean for, for China? Um, to the extent that the Chinese government, to the extent that Chinese firms, or to the extent that there is a calculus in Beijing, that if we have investment... Um, going on in Africa, we're going to be doing things that local leaders want because the people want it. And these local leaders are then going to be beholden to us, right? Because they want our, they want our investment, right? They're going to feel loyal to us or feel aligned with us. That calculus breaks down because by the time these projects get implemented, the political leaders seem to be paying a price in terms of public opinion. So, so there's, there's several strings going on here. I mean, one is obviously, um, but the, I would say, excuse me, the most important string going on here is that for the local leaders in Africa, they eventually pay a cost due to the unmet expectations of citizens. Two immediate questions come to mind. I mean, the first is unmet expectations 
um, by citizens about their political leaders would seem to be a universal phenomenon. I mean, this is, I mean, the plot of the wire. So I, I guess my first question is, 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 is this, is there something uniquely China-Africa nexus here, or is this just about how political leaders, I mean, this is every campaign stump speech is I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bring jobs. I'm going to, you know, cure the sick, you know, feed the poor. And then a, a leader gets into office and the delta between, you know, their initial pronouncements and reality sets in, voters get cynical, they vote them out, or the person creates a rent-seeking machine and is able to stay in office forever. So is there, I guess, question number one is, I'll, I'll hold on question number two. That, that's my first question. This seems a very familiar story. And am I right in that? You are a wise man. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. And later on, you might allow me to plug a new uh, project where we're actually comparing Chinese investment with U.S. investment, not on this dimension, but but on a, on a related dimension um, from this second paper that we're working on, That we the second paper that you mentioned. Just at, by way of anecdote, uh, there's a great Twitter website that's called Foxconn Aerials that is uh, devoted to this. It's a guy who has a private license. In 2017 in uh, Wisconsin, there was an announcement of the huge, I think 10 million Foxconn investment. Uh, I don't think this is relevant to Foxconn being a Taiwanese firm, by the way, I would just say, we'll take it as your standard, like vanilla foreign investor. Um, It was going to, supposed to create 13,000 jobs and Scott Walker, the governor at the time, was way into it. Donald Trump went there and, you know, promoted it as this is how we do great things. And, you know, by the way, Scott Walker was going to be running for re-election shortly thereafter. And this Foxconn Ariel's uh, Twitter, uh, the guy started going up in his plane and just circling it once every few weeks to look at actually what the progress was of this um, project. And, you know, it was Time after time, there was no pro- nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. And then maybe about early 2021, um, Foxconn announced, well, we're cutting back. We're only going to hire, we're going to do something different than building big screen TVs. We're going to do data, data management or something. I'm sorry, I don't know exactly what they said. And the number of jobs we create is going to be a quarter of what it was going to be. And now you see some activity um, growing there. But here you have exactly the same thing um, as we're saying we may see in, in Africa, which is that, you know, local political leaders hope to gain a lot and they may not. And they and they may, um, like Scott Walker eventually was, be punished. It's not the whole reason that he was not reelected. But, you know, it, they, they pay, they can bear some of the blame for projects not living up to the expectations that were set. So, um, look, you know, to truly answer your question about whether this is a thing related to China or Africa versus whether it is a universal issue um, that sounds very familiar, we could, we should, could, should do some broader statistical exploration of it, but certainly it sounds quite familiar. The second question I was going to ask is about, I guess, staying in the realm of incentive structures and cost where is the breakdown? What are the mechanics behind this, uh, the unmet expectations? So if I, as a political leader, gain this initial victory by this announcement of some Chinese FDI and, and all the great, wonderful, you know, milk, honey, and gold it will provide for the local population, where's the breakdown between, uh, and again, I know this is a macro study, so I'm just actually wondering if you can just think out loud rather than, but where do we think the breakdown is between uh, local leaders holding this Chinese FDI's feet to the fire 
And why isn't the prospect of this political cost or this this unmet expectations or the the frustration of my local constituency why isn't that great enough to incentivize me to you know find a way to keep the the discrepancy between promise and reality very tight yeah that's that's great to think about and and again, I would love to be in the field and asking these you know asking these questions. My sense is that the leaders have timeframes about like the U.S. Congress people have timeframes, which is very, very short, right? Um, their feet gets held to the fire when they're in a, an, the incumbent and an opponent decides to make the unmet expectations a subject of what I call political football, right? When they, when they say, well, you know, um, you said you would do this and you didn't do it. And then suddenly their feet are being held to the fire in an electoral manner. We haven't done an analysis to show that these people actually get voted out of office. It's just, we're, we've only been able to look at what the public expectation up expectation is, but you can imagine that it becomes politically uncomfortable for them if they are suddenly then hard with the idea of, you know, you let the Chinese in and they didn't do what they said they were going to do. And so we blame you, uh, perhaps in addition to the Chinese. Um, One interesting thing I think is going on is that at least in some very prominent cases, and here I'm thinking of cases of mining, like in the DRC, you find that these um, unmet expectations do become a very, very big political uh, issue. Uh, so with regard to, I think it was the Seco Mines project, um, cobalt mining, if I'm not mistaken, in DRC, and maybe uh, China Mali, which does more uh, broader mining. You know, there were promises when the contracts were signed that we were going to build hospitals and start schools and we were going to build roads. And eventually this didn't happen at the pace that was promised. And people began protesting and it became very, very negative uh, dynamic for Uh, local leaders as well as for China. And what I believe I have seen, again, anecdotally, is that the Chinese government, Beijing, is now saying, you can't let this happen, right? So the ambassador will go in and say, you know, look, you need to be building these roads to the company and you need to be taking care of these promises that you made so that our brand isn't isn't totally sullied. So there's this interesting feedback loop, I think, which may involve Chinese political actors on the ground, such as from the in, in the embassies or whatever, or from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying, you know, we don't like, this is a really bad look for us. So get your act together and do the right thing, even if the local politicians aren't holding your feet to the fire. Can you talk a bit about how the unmet expectations, I understand how it affects uh, constituents' view of their local leaders. How does it affect, how do we think it affects their view of, of China? So we could turn then to the China model paper, which maybe directs um, is a little bit. I hadn't intended this to be a segue, but I'm, I appreciate you seeing a, an opportunity and taking it. So just as a reminder, this next paper is from World Development. It's does uh, does Chinese FDI in Africa inspire support for a China model of development? So again, the methodology is quite similar. Um, we have a few more constraints because the uh, questions in the Afrobarometer about China did not appear until until the mid-20-teens, what was called round six of this survey. The round seven of the survey, oddly enough, did not ask the questions about China. Uh, and then the 2008 surveys that did, again, ask about China uh, have not yet been um, released fully enough to be able to use. So we're looking, we're looking at a smaller data set in this paper in terms of the, the African citizenry responses. But what we find is that basically... Investments from China undermine African citizens' 
affinity or support for a China model of development, right? And so they're also, in terms of their impressions of China, are China's paying a price. Just quickly on that, Margaret, um, can you help us understand the difference between their view of a China model of development and their view of China? Right. So, um, so, and this is one of the pitfalls of statistical research on a data, on a survey that, that designs the questions that, that you haven't yourself been able to ask the questions. They do ask the question, uh, do you think China has a lot of influence? Uh, and do you think China's model is the best model of development for your country? So the survey does not specify, I think we have a sense of what influence might mean, but in terms of a China model, we have to um, speculate as to what people, when they're answering the question, might think of in their minds as a China model of development. And that's, uh, you know, that gets a little complicated. I can, I can uh, sort of lay out the different possibilities if that's, if that's helpful, but um, they are, uh, we, we assume that the people, when answering this question, are thinking, is China's economic model, uh, the way that they are bringing development to us, suggest a path that we think is the best one for our country over a period of time. And they essentially don't. We can assume that this means that their affinity for sort of China as a country is also harmed. And indeed, their view of Chinese influence is also, they believe China is more influential in their country. They see China everywhere. They see Chinese companies everywhere. So this makes sense. China is more influential, but they do not necessarily think that the way that China is uh, investing in the local community, sort of right there, you know, in their town, bringing jobs or not bringing jobs, bringing new goods or not bringing goods, that that does not make them say, therefore, this China model is the right way for our country to go. Could be the case, though, right, that there, and I realize there's limitations in terms of the data, as you say, because, um, and this brings to mind another thing I think you and I talked about of the need for better, additional, more detailed survey questions. Um, and I've thought about this a lot recently, that even you know the questions asked in the US about China, it's basically China good or bad. Whereas what I would want to know is just on on you know China's economic interdependence, like fifty questions, right? That just go really deep and more nuanced. That way you can move beyond the China good or bad and actually start honing in on precisely what where concerns are or where support is. And it'd be great to do this globally. So um, if anyone wants to give Margaret and me a, a massive grant to do a global survey, we are our emails are publicly available and we will await. I only go big, Margaret. But I, I guess the question is, this is not necessarily saying we don't want China involved, but we don't like the way or we see some downsides of the way that it is, you know, Chinese um, FDI is currently structured, right? So this is not necessarily saying folks don't want the economic engagement with China, but there's some frustration with the existing structure of that engagement. Is that correct? Yeah, or there's there's not it's not the magic fix for us. Or again, now I'm going to speculate uh, quite a lot. It could even mean that, you know, we're happy for this engagement, but you know, we would take engagement in a lot of different forms, like the Tanzanian model, or the French model, or the former colonial model, or the South African model, or the Japanese model. You know, it's it's not it's not seeming to redound to the benefit of. China per se. 
uh, even if they might appreciate having a new factory locally. Although I'd like to, I, we just turned to this paper, I, I might have to start steering us towards the, you know, conclusions, takeaways, but maybe to linger on this, this second paper just for a, a few final questions, because I think it's so important. I sit in DC, and of course, the the broad narrative seems to point to China's growing influence and engagement across the global south, with, of course, Africa being very important. I'm trying to, in my head, take the results of these two papers and fit that together with how we're thinking about the competition with uh, with China globally and specifically China's influence in Africa. You are painting a much more nuanced picture of we we might need to disaggregate sort of just looking at aggregate statistics and seeing how China's influence is actually when the rubber meets the road and, and local constituents actually engage with, with China, so non-state actors engage with China, there's much more of a, of a mixed picture here. If you were, again, we're at this bar and I just have heard you give this fantastic summary of these two papers and I'm asking you the kind of, so, so how should I think about Africa's engagement, excuse me, China's engagement in Africa? On the one hand, it feels like on the FDI side, and again, as you say in the paper, foreign aid is different. So this is just looking at foreign direct investment. What is my big takeaway here? That the the more the more China's engaged on the FDI side in Africa, that actually it it creates a negative uh, image of China in the eyes of African citizens. Is that the takeaway? I would think the takeaway from just looking at China would be that it doesn't have the payoffs for China and China's reputation that we often assume that China going in and doing a lot of things in terms of investment has. So we assume, you know, in Washington, we say, oh, China's doing this because they want to have a positive influence in Africa. They want to, you know, buy influence by through foreign investment. And I think what these papers show is that simply by virtue of investing in Africa, China is not buying influence amongst African citizens or not necessarily winning over the hearts and minds of African citizens the way we often assume they are. Now, if, you, if you'd let me, um, we do have a project that is inspired by the following thought, which is how much of what we found in these first two papers is about, is about China, right? China qua China, and people are reacting to China versus the fact that it's an external actor. Right. The other thing that we know is that when Chinese investments go into Africa, they're not operating in a vacuum. You have American companies there. You have European companies there. So presumably people are are understanding all of this. Right. They're looking at a broader Petri dish of foreign companies. Uh, right. And so they're making perhaps trade offs in their judgments of these companies. We do have a new study that we're just finishing the analysis again, using the same methodology, comparing Chinese foreign projects, foreign investment projects with U.S. foreign investment projects. And what I would say, and this is perhaps the, the biggest takeaway for policymakers, is that African citizens are asked if they're located near a Chinese investment product project, which is the better model for your country, the Chinese, proje- the Chinese model or the U.S. model? They say the U.S. model. Now, when they're located close to a U.S. company and they say, which do you prefer? Chinese model or the U.S. model, guess who they say? 
the Chinese model, right? So this would suggest that, you know, familiarity with or proximity to or exposure to a foreign investment project breeds contempt, right? So it may not matter so much where it's coming from, but that you may, you know, find that the reputation of each is sullied by exposure to you. And and then, which to me is so interesting because, you know, we have, we just had this Africa summit in Washington, right? Where the headline was African leaders come and the U.S. is going to you know, commit to investments in Africa. And even though we are saying this isn't about buying influence in Africa, the takeaway line for at least most of the media was U.S. seeking to buy influence in Africa by increasing investments. And I think the takeaway would be, you know, you may not get from increased foreign direct investment in Africa by American companies may not have the payoff for U.S. influence that we we hope it may. I was just thinking the I would be interested to know in that question, you know, when you have proximity to a foreign investment project, it breeds a similar aggregate level of, you know, underwhelming sort of reaction. But I would be interested to know if the nature of the complaints or the nature of the under underwhelming, is there a different word than underwhelming, is similar. I wonder if they're distinct complaints when you're near a Chinese project versus a US one. I'm just trying to steer us towards a conclusion here. But the other thing I was thinking is part of this would really depend on where China sees payoff and influence. Because even if it's alienating or at least not getting, as you say, the the kind of the payoff in terms of influence with African voters and citizens, if I can shape political and diplomatic outcomes because I'm buying off or or at least you know helping to feather the nest of of African leaders okay that'll help me at the UN that'll help me in global governance bodies you know and you've you've written a lot about this as well then okay so I wonder if do we know is China failing on the influence front or is it actually winning it's just you know it's trying to influence a different set of actors yeah, I mean that's a great question. It's, it's a very important question, right? So um, I think that uh, there's quite a lot of research out there that looks at whether um, through aid and investment, China is winning allies in UN in the UN General Assembly on votes, for example. Um, and you know, I'd say that most of the literature on that would suggest, yeah, elites that of countries from Africa or Latin America or whatever are voting in the UN may be more influenced by Chinese economic activities in their countries. Um, but it's not as it is not as strong an effect as is generally touted by China's enemies, basically. Um, it, there's, I think, a whole lot more to explore there. In some other research that I have um, going on with Scott Kastner, my colleague at the University of Maryland, we're also trying to look at on issues where China that are very, very important to China, because most issues that get voted on in the UN General Assembly are not really that important to China. You know, they're sort of low level influence. But on things that are really important to China, how much influence do these kinds of economic ties have on whether other countries will align with China? This is so, for example, on the UN letters uh, about Xinjiang and about Hong Kong, you know, it's kind of dueling letters in the UN saying, you know, we condemn China versus we support China. And, you know, we find a a weaker than might be expected relationship between um, support for China uh, on things that China really cares about like gaining support over its over its policies in Xinjiang, we find much weaker support for the idea that trade and investment drive that. There's much stronger support for the idea that trade and investment might make countries not vocally oppose China, 
right? Maybe stay silent. So you may be, uh, again, the tagline here might be buying silence uh, from countries when you have a lot of trade and investment that goes on, for example. But once again, I would just say that my take is that these are really complicated relationships and very often they get boiled down to really kind of simplistic uh, memes about if China does X, it's 100 feet tall and they get whatever they want out of whatever they do without looking at the more either diffuse effect or the second order consequences. Uh, And that's really where um, some really interesting research is going on right now uh, that I hope I'm involved with it, but that a lot of scholars are beginning to think about. Is buying silence the name of a paper? If it's not, it should be. Well, I've proposed it to my colleagues as the name of the paper. I'm not sure I've sold it to them, (laughs) but I'll tell them your vote is there. Will it help that I endorsed it here? It will. As soon as you said that, I thought, oh, I, I'm always on the lookout for names of publications or or names of bands. I feel like I've got an ear. Oh, I don't know if Biting Silence would be a great band name, but yeah, right. I was just thinking, uh, unrelated, but the Wall Street Journal had an article on SPACs, special acquisition or special purpose acquisition companies. I was thinking SPAC would be a good name for a band. Margaret is a, just an indication of, you know, that we've, go, we've gone an hour, which is a half hour more than I'm supposed to go in these. But it's, first of all, just an indication of how interesting this line of work is. And again, we really scratched the surface of these two papers. So um, highly recommend that anyone who's interested in a much more nuanced understanding of how China's economic engagement with Africa interacts with real living human beings in, in, in Africa rather than abstractions. Both these papers are very, very interesting. And, and as Margaret was just indicating, this is you know just two in a papers in a line of work that she's working on. So we should be on the active lookout for future work here. So Margaret, first of all, thank you very much for taking an hour out of a busy day right before the holidays to do this. And I appreciate all the influence you've had on, speaking of influence, you've had on my thinking on China as I've been you know, reading your work uh, ever since I've been interested in China. So thanks for the conversation and thanks for all you do. Thank you so much. It's really a lot of, you know, it's always fun to talk about If anybody shows a modicum of interest in your work, you know, most scholars can go on and on and on. So thank you for your your patience with uh, these long-winded answers and uh, look forward to following up with anybody who's got further questions. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.